All right, let me bring the speaker up. <clears throat> Good evening. <laughs> let me. All right, well, as much as I enjoy serving and leading singing, I enjoy more the preaching of God's word and, and teaching what God has communicated to us in it. And it is my joy and privilege to be able to open up the book of Habakkuk with us uh, this evening when uh, Pastor Rag had reached out to some of the guys to uh, let us know <clears throat> what, uh, what the plan was and that we were going to be going through the minor prophets. Uh, I rejoiced because I've already preached two messages on the minor prophets. <laughs> and uh, so I said, I will take Habakkuk and Micah. Um, if anyone else wants them, that's fine. And I'll study a new one. But uh, if you need me to, to go early, I will, I'm already prepared. <laughs> so uh, it is my joy again to open up the book of Habakkuk. And uh, I'm excited to go through the minor prophets uh, because the minor prophets are to many people uh, unapproachable. I think a lot of people have a difficult time interacting with the minor prophets and flushing out what exactly is being communicated, what is uh, what we're supposed to get from it, understanding the historical context uh, of of the books. And I think if we were to survey many Christians and probably many in this room, there'd be a lot of confusion when it came to clearly understanding what these books are about and what is trying to be uh, communicated from God. We know that all scripture is God breathed and it is all useful, right? For, for our, our teaching and our learning. And so that includes the minor prophets. Uh, one of the perks of preaching is that you get to spend a lot of time going through a particular book or passage and really fleshing it out and studying the context, studying the, uh, the author, studying the historical situation of uh, where and when it was written. And I hope to answer a lot of these questions as we pass through the book of Habakkuk this evening. And it can give us a lot of understanding, actually, for some of the times that we're living in. Uh, that there's a lot of similarities between uh, what Habakkuk was seeing and experiencing around him and what we're seeing and experiencing around us this uh, and in this day and age. Uh, so why don't I open up in a word of prayer and uh, we'll, we'll be able to dive into the book of Habakkuk. So why don't you play, pray with me, please? Dear Lord, I, I pray for your sustaining power, God, that you will guide my heart and mind, uh, my tongue, Lord, that I will be able to clearly communicate to the truths in the book of Habakkuk, God, and what you were communicating uh, to the prophet about his day and time, Lord, and uh, that you will help us to be able to draw a line uh, from that and help us to, to better understand and react to what's going on in our day and time, Lord. And uh, we know that you are the same sovereign God uh, that communicated these truths to Habakkuk, Lord, and you are the same sovereign God today who uh, is communicating truth to us through your word to help us understand you, how you interact with society, Lord, and uh, and we can better worship you and uh, better, uh, more effectively uh, place our faith and trust in you, God, uh, despite uh, whatever the present circumstances are in our life, God. I pray that you will direct our hearts and minds, Lord, grant us the understanding, the clarity of thought that we need to understand these words, and I pray that we would uh, understand them in a way that would help us to apply and to live them out in our lives. I pray it's your name. Amen. 
Well, to say that our current culture is hurtling towards godlessness is an understatement, right? I don't think we need to spend too much time uh, explaining the uh, the precipitous fall that our culture, that our time, our world is is experiencing. The rate of speed at which our culture has run from objective truth that we were talking about a moment ago towards a warped sense of what is right and wrong uh, is breathtaking. But the reality is that we live in a world that has been decades in the making that we did not wake up one day and turn out where we are right now, as we were just speaking about just a few moments ago, that this, this has been going back decades that there was a time when the theme of our society was that everything just need to be tolerated, that tolerance was the call that every viewpoint and behavior needed to be tolerated. But soon we transitioned into a culture that no longer demanded tolerance, but now demanded that we must accept something which was quickly followed by not only accepting something, but now you must approve of that. So even if you didn't want to tolerate it in the first place and you were, you were refusing to accept it. Now we demand that you celebrate this. You celebrate and approve what the Bible calls wicked. And not only must we celebrate sin, we must do it on the world's term. We must do it as the world calls us to do as our culture calls us. They are calling us to celebrate what God has called wicked. Even a casual observation of the news, something that I don't often suggest, portrays a country that is out of control. We know our country is seemingly coming apart at the seams. We have anger in the streets, anger at the Capitol building. We have our cities being burned down, innocents being murdered without cause, families and communities being torn apart and manipulated over how to handle an epidemic or an election. We see the justification and the celebration of the murder of millions of precious babies on the altar of the sexual revolution. We can have our heads spinning around as we watch the spiraling degradation of our society. It can leave you dizzy watching the speed as it just spins and spins and spins and spins faster and faster and faster as it goes down the drain. And I think we have a similar mindset to what Habakkuk was going through in his day and age. Habakkuk had a similar situation going on around him. And we are left with saying, what in the world is going on? I can't keep up with with the, the events. I can't keep up with what is true and right according to our world anymore. And I think something that we have said a number of times and is that we, what we know to be true and what we believe about God to be true is what dictates our response in these uncertain times and this instability. Without a firm foundation of truth, you, we will be swept away by the waves of a changing culture. But that doesn't mean that we still aren't sometimes left perplexed, maybe like Paul is in 2 Corinthians 4 but we know we're not driven to despair. This evening, as we go through the book of Habakkuk, we're going to see Habakkuk's reaction to a time of great sin and a great uncertainty in his own country and the nation of Judah. He was a man who had a proper theology and a knowledge of God, but he was still left spinning by the degradation of false worship and immorality from the top down in the nation of Judah. As we go, I, I want to remind us of a few differences between our time now and uh, the time of Habakkuk. 
And these are important things to remember as we study and open up the word and uh, uh, attempt to apply these truths to our current uh, state. First of all, I think we need to remember that the nation of Israel was under God's theocratic rule, uh, that God was leading Israel. Now they had set up a monarchy and a kingship uh, by their own demand, but there were consequences for obedience and disobedience of God's word and the law. That, that they have a special relationship with God, uh, who was their God. He was their Yahweh, their covenant Lord. Habakkuk also had a special revelation from God regarding the situation. We don't have God talking to us specifically one-on-one to tell us this is what's happening and this is what I'm doing. That is a relationship that Habakkuk had with God. But we don't have the privilege of of having that one-on-one. But we have the greater privilege, the more true prophetic word that Peter speaks about in 2 Peter. We have God's word, and so we know what to be true about God. We have more revelation than Habakkuk ever did. And the end of the story is being revealed to Habakkuk as we work our way through. God tells Habakkuk what is going to happen. He says, this is specifically what I am doing in the world today. Again, We don't have that specific revelation from God for him to explain that this is why I am doing A, B, and C. We don't have that that privilege of of that knowledge. So a few things to keep in mind as we, we open up the book of Habakkuk. Now, a little bit of a historical context of when Habakkuk was written. This is written after the King Josiah's death. We're in the southern tribes of, of Israel and Judah. And after Josiah, there was a religious uh, reformation under Josiah where the law of the Lord was rediscovered. Uh, but quickly after his death, uh, he died uh, in combat with Egypt, and Egypt put his son Jehoiakim in charge, and uh, he reversed the reforms that were realized under his father. Uh, that all of uh, the religious reforms that were uh, realized and experienced under Josiah, Jehoiakim reversed. He set up shrines to false worship, imported religious practices from Egypt. They were paying hefty tribute to Egypt, and he t- further took from his people in order to build for himself a lavish palace. Uh, We see a lot about Jehoiakim in the book of Jeremiah. He cut into pieces and burned the scroll from Jeremiah detailing the catastrophic judgment that was about to descend upon him and his land, that he was actively opposed to God's revelation. Israel had placed a false confidence in their invincibility after the angel of the Lord had struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers on the doorsteps of Jerusalem under the rule of Hezekiah. They looked at themselves and said, we're invincible. God can't, God can't let Jerusalem go. You see in Jeremiah 7, they say, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This is God's holy place. God wasn't going to let anything happen to us. This is where God lives. In Jeremiah 7, he warns Israel and warns Jerusalem. Now look, you're going to come exactly like Shiloh. You will be destroyed. Late in the 7th century is when Habakkuk is writing this. This is before Nebuchadnezzar would march his forces from Babylon to take Jerusalem. And we need to remember that at this point, the northern tribes have already been taken away. They're already been taken away by the Assyrians uh, into uh, uh, a dispersed captivity. Uh, So at this point, the nation of Judah is living in absolute wickedness, absolute godlessness. And as far as Habakkuk goes, 
we actually don't really know much about Habakkuk. Uh, the details in Habakkuk's life are slim to none. Uh, we know that he was a contemporary of the likes of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zephaniah, that they're all ministering at about the same time and warning the nation of Judah to repent and of the impending uh, coming judgment of God. It's interesting that in within this book, there's not a national message. In many of the minor prophets, uh, they're either speaking to the, the nation of Israel or like uh, the, the nation of Edom um, in Obadiah. Uh, that you have a, a specific nation being addressed in this situation. This is a conversation between the prophet and his God. This is a lament. In this small book, we have a conversation between someone who treasures God's precepts and sees his nation profaning it with no regard or shame. We see that the lament here is a crying out to God in faith. A lament is, is looking at the situation around you, looking at what is going on and attempting to react to it with a faith and understanding of what you know to be true about God. It's starting with an acknowledgement of the negative, but moving towards the positive. It starts with fear and moves to trust. It moves from sorrow and ends with joy. It is dealing with fear, grief, and sadness by crying out to God and shifting our perspective towards his sovereign goodness. Now, Habakkuk is instructive as to how we ought to live and think righteously in the midst of unchecked national unrighteousness. That's exactly what Habakkuk was living through. Now, to set the stage, we're going to look in the first couple of chapters of the book of Habakkuk, we're going to look at two uh, objections, two complaints that Habakkuk raises to God. And each of these is followed by a response from God. Then in chapter two, we see a series of woes that God is directing towards the wickedness of Babylon. And then the book is wrapped up in the third chapter with Habakkuk's prayer of reflection in light of everything that has just been revealed to him. So let's begin our time with looking at complaint number one. Complaint number one is we see right in verse two. He says, God, why are you not working? That is complaint number one. Why are you not working? Let's read two through four of chapter one. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. You see his initial lament, Habakkuk is crying out to God saying, God, why aren't you working? Why are you silent? How long do I need to cry out to you and you're not hearing me? Now we see as we work, work our way through these first, this first initial complaint by Habakkuk that we see what his perception of the situation is. He's not privy to what God's actually doing. This is how he perceives the situation to be. Saying, God, I'm crying out to you and I don't see an answer. I'm crying out to you about the rampant wickedness around me. And I don't see you acting. 
It says, I, 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 in, the first, in the first part, he says, I, I cry for help. The, the Hebrew here word is shavuah. And it's, it's a passionate cry for help. But then you see in the very next part, he says, I cry to you. He uses a different word here for cry. And this is a more intense anguishing or shrieking. Just, I, I, cry for, I cry for help. And then I shriek out and say, there's violence going on. People are perverting the word of God. They're trespassing what you say to be holy. God, you promised blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. I don't see a whole lot of cursing going on, but I see a whole lot of disobedience. And he says, why do you make me see this iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Again, this is from his perspective. And he perceives that God is just idle. That God's just kicking his feet up, biding his time, almost ignorant as to what's going on down below him on earth. The consequence of this rampant wickedness is that the law is paralyzed and justice isn't going forth. A consequence is that the law has no reforming effect. The law was still there and the law was ruling over them. And it brought great promise when it was followed and great blessing would follow national obedience. But when the law was disregarded, justice is never realized. Justice was not being experienced or seen. And previously, the law was not only ignored, it was completely forgotten. It was under the reign of Josiah that they were cleaning out the temple and they said, hey, what do we have here? What, what, what's this thing covered in dust? And blow it off and it's like, this is the law of the Lord. And how quickly they fall back into that same trap right after Josiah's death. So Habakkuk's first complaint is, God, why are you not working? Why are you idle? You see many different words for sin, iniquity, wrong, destruction, violence. This wickedness. Habakkuk is saying this is unavoidable. God, how are you missing what is going on here? And God, very patiently, responds to Habakkuk probably more patiently than I would have, right? If you are charged with injustice by your child and you sit them down and say, look, let me explain to you the reality of the situation right now. <laughs> God says, look, God, God's, God's answer to Habakkuk here is gracious. It says in verse five, says Habakkuk, I want you to look among the nations and see. I want you to wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. He says, oh, Habakkuk, I'm working. I'm working. You just can't see it right now. But I want you to, I want you to just lift your eyes off of the horizon. I want you to look up and see what's going on in the nations around you. Historically speaking at this point, the nation of Assyria has fallen, replaced by the nation of Babylon. Now, 
the, the, the nation of Assyria, we know it was a wicked nation. And two brothers fought for control. Nabo Palaser was a sub-king in Babylon, and he was Nebuchadnezzar's father. And then he fought his, his brother, Ashurbanipal, who was the king of Assyria. You had a clash of the titans, and Babylon comes out on top. And God's calling to Habakkuk and says, remember the Assyrians? I want you to look in that direction. I want you to look to the north. He says, verse six, behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. It's the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. We know of the depravity of the Assyrians when it came to wickedness and and torture. The Assyrians get all the press, but that was not a foreign concept to the Babylonians. They too would exercise their justice in heinous ways. If you look forward and fast forward, Zedekiah, the king of Judah is conquered and Babylon is about to haul him off. And they say, is that a guy? Why don't you bring your sons here? And they bring Zedekiah's sons before him and they slaughter his sons in front of him. And they say, we want that to be the last thing that you see. And they gouge out his eyeballs. So that the last thing that this king who re- dared to rebel against Babylon would see was the murder of his own sons. The nasty people this is really bad. God's saying, look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And he goes on to, ex- to describe them. Their horses in verse eight are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like evil, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth to take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their God. So God's response to Habakkuk's complaint, Habakkuk says, God, you're not doing anything. He says, no, no, I am. I'm raising up a wicked nation for my own purposes. Yeah, I want you to look to the north. Good news, Habakkuk. I am working and the Babylonians are going to be my tool. The Chaldeans are going to come in and they're going to wipe you out. I think sometimes when you cry out to God, you don't expect a response like that. And Habakkuk didn't either. Habakkuk follows it up with a quick objection. His second complaint, 
Why would you act like that? No, no, that's not how you're supposed to act. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Habakkuk had bought into the same lie that the nation of Israel had. We're protected here. We're your people. You can't, I mean, the, the, nation of, the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, I get it, God. I understand why you dragged them away and spread them out throughout the world, why you raised up the Assyrians to conquer them. I get it. They were wicked. They were heinous. But we're your people down here. We have Jerusalem. We have the temple. Sure, there are some bad eggs around us, but you're a holy God and we're your people. You are supposed to reform your people, not haul them away. It says, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors who are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? It says, God, you're holy. You can't look on sin. How could you use the Chaldeans? How could you use them to accomplish your purposes, to enforce your law? We're more righteous than they are. As if Habakkuk is looking at a ruler and falling into the temptation that we so often fall into. Right? Where we compare our righteousness to others rather than to God's. Habakkuk says, you, you can't be serious. You can't raise them up. You're a holy God. You can't use wickedness like that. He recites what he knows to be true about God. You're the holy one. You are from everlasting. You have pure eyes. You, you, you can't look on evil. Meanwhile, the wicked are triumphing over the righteous. And he goes on to explain what this looks like in verse 15, verse 14. Let's start in verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings up, speaking of the Chaldeans, all of them with a hook and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet and he rejoices and is glad. This idea of this evil nation mowing across the landscape, devouring everyone, taking all people with them. He says, God, you're going to catch up Israel in a net like the rest of the fish? He says, then this word picture in verse 16, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. He says, they, they rejoice in their evilness. In their means of conquering, they rejoice and they worship that. And you're raising them up. You're giving them the means to, to accomplish this. Now Habakkuk, verse 1 of chapter 2, says, I will take my stand at my watch post. And I will station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. <laughs> it's a little bit of, of Jonah right here, right? 
a little bit of Jonah. I'll go and I'll preach the gospel to Nineveh. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to watch out the city and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to wait to watch it burn. I'm going to see how God's going to react right now. But instead, like that, this is more Job crying out to God and asking in faith and not understanding the situation and not understanding why God is acting the way that God is acting and just wanting to simply understand what God is doing and why. I think we can sympathize with that a little bit with what's going on. God, why are you allowing a nation to spin out of control? And we're not even God's chosen nation. Israel was. So he says, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to stand on my watchtower. My watch post where I can see, right? This is, the, this is where people would watch for the invaders coming into the land. I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to watch. And I'm going to see how it is that you're going to act. So I know how to respond. And the Lord answers again, graciously. Verse two, he says, write this vision, make it plain on tablets. So he may run who reads it. <laughs> so back, back told, get a pen and paper. I want you to write this down because people who read it need to be terrified. Verse three, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This is God's judgment. It's going to come. You just wait for it. Behold, he's speaking of Babylon here. His soul is puffed up and it is not right upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. You may recognize that from Paul. He says his, his soul speaking of Babylon here. Yes, they are prideful. Yes. They do think that they are invincible. They think that they are the source of their own power. They're puffed up. There's this word for a tumor, a big puffy tumor. They had great pride. You look at Nebuchadnezzar, right? God humbled Nebuchadnezzar greatly, reduced him to a beast, eating the land. Babylon was a prideful nation. They were prideful because they thought they were the source of their power. They thought the victories that they were experiencing were because they were great. And God says, they're not righteous. They're not righteous because they don't live by faith. They live dependent upon their own strength. Saying, don't worry, Habakkuk. I am still a righteous judge. And then he's going to go on and give him account of what he will do to the Chaldeans. What he's going to do to these Babylonians. We're not going due to time to go through all of these woes here in chapter two, but he lists out five woes in verse six, nine, 12, 15, and 19. These five woes 
Woes against the ill-gotten gain. Woes against their inhumanity. Woes against their iniquity. Woes against their intoxication. Woes against their idolatry. All of these things. God is saying to Habakkuk, look, I understand they are wicked. These have not gone by me unnoticed. I understand their sinfulness. I understand their idolatry. And I will punish it. That is not your concern, Habakkuk. That is my concern. And I will handle that in my timing as I desire, God says. Well, Habakkuk has not heard the message that he anticipated to hear. He starts out by crying out to God saying, God, why are you not doing anything? Why are you sleeping? Almost like Elijah and the prophets of Baal saying, oh, cry louder. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. And Habakkuk's falling into the same trap saying, God, are you sleeping? God said, no, I'm not. I'm doing a work right now. I'm raising up a people in my timing to carry out my justice and my judgment. Well, what is Habakkuk's reaction to all this? What, what is his way of, how, how does he respond? We see this in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Let's read this prayer of Habakkuk. O Lord, he starts out, O Lord, you see L-O-R-D, all capital letters there. That is the covenant name of God. Used to show that he is acknowledging God's covenantal faithfulness to Israel. O Lord, Yahweh, I have heard the report of you. I, I knew of you. I've studied you. I had theology. I knew who you were. I knew your work. I have learned the law. I have learned the, the, the Pentateuch. I, I've gone and I've heard of your faithfulness and your works. And I, I hear what you're saying. And oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So you thank God. I understand what you're saying. I hear your words. I hear the coming judgment. And he has a plea for the Lord. In your wrath, remember mercy. Remember, he, he begins and he uses the name of God twice in that verse. The covenantal faithfulness of God. Obviously, he does not need to remind God of his promises to Israel. But Habakkuk's prayer, I understand the need for wrath. I understand why you are doing what you are doing. But Lord, remember mercy. Remember your promises to Israel. Verses 3 through 15, we see a recounting of God's power. Habakkuk spends time in, the, in his reaction. Remember, this is a prayer from Habakkuk, his response 
to the revelation from God of coming and impending judgment. And his response is to recount the ways of God's power throughout the Exodus and, and God and, and Israel's deliverance. And he goes through to remind himself of God's faithfulness of when God did remember mercy in his judgments. Remember that the, the, the time, the Exodus in the wilderness was a, a time that was meant to be informative to the people of Israel, to mold them and to shape them and to teach them to depend upon God for everything, to teach them to depend upon him for what they needed, to teach them to depend upon him for protection, that he would be the one that went before them to achieve the victories that he would be the one that would fight the battles for them. He would be the one that would provide the food that they need. He would be the one that would provide the water that they need. He would be the one that would provide the lamb that they needed for the sacrifice. And he's recounting God's faithfulness through this. And, and God's God's, sovereign power on display in the past. This is why God reveals what he has done. He reveals his work in his word for us so that we can remember who this God is that we depend upon for our deliverance. These are not cute stories that we can teach with flannel graph to small children. These are stories that we use to educate our faith to make it strong so that when we are in the face, face of, of great opposition, we realize that the same God who shattered the walls of a mighty city like Jericho simply by walking around it and blowing on horns, that that is the God who is, is preserving us. The same God that would make food fall from the sky is the same God that provides for us what, whatever he deems that we need. That is why God has recounted to us the events of, 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 of the word of God so that we can respond like Habakkuk here and say, look, I see how many times you have been faithful in the past. And then we see in verses 16 to 19, I want to close with this, which is good because that's where Habakkuk closes his book. It's fitting, right? In verses 16 through 19, we see a personal dependence upon God. He says, I hear my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Very similar to the book of Job, right? I've spoken once and I lay my hand over my mouth. I, I'm, not gonna, I'm done. <laughs> I see God in the whirlwind. Habakkuk has the same response. My body's trembling. Because I've heard the word of God. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. If, if Habakkuk was familiar with jello, I'm sure he would have used that here. My legs are like jello. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. What was God's response to Habakkuk's second objection? 
If it seems slow, if my judgment seems slow, if my action seems slow, Habakkuk, what does he tell him to do in verse three, chapter two? He says, wait for it, wait for it. And here Habakkuk says, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I'm going to wait for you, God. I'm going to wait for your deliverance. I understand that you will preserve your people and you will judge those who invade us. Then he says in verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vine, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. Remember, this is an agrarian dependent society. If we were to, I didn't prepare this ahead of time, I probably should have, it would be homiletically pretty good. The internet were to fail. The grocery stores were to run out of food. The gas pumps dry up of their gasoline. The wind not blow and provide power for the turbines. That everything that we grow to depend upon, the electricity goes out. All of these things, he said, though the, everything that this society depends upon, the fig tree doesn't blossom, doesn't provide the figs anymore. The fruit isn't on the vine. Our, our flocks, the animals are gone. All this stuff that we depend upon, though everything is destroyed. What does he say? Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. My joy is not tied to these things. I understand, God, that you are the sovereign God. You are the covenantally faithful Lord. And I'm placing my joy in you, regardless of what you allow to be stripped away. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Notice my salvation is not realized in stuff. My salvation is not realized in the fig on the vine, the the grapes, the goats, the sheep. That's not what my joy is found in. That's not my salvation. That's not what I'm depending upon. He says, God, you are my salvation. So he resolves in verse 19, God, the Lord. God, the Lord, the covenantally faithful God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever seen a nature documentary where you may see a deer or uh, an ibex climb these ridiculously steep slopes and there is like no possible way that anything should be able to grip. But God made them with these, these hooves that are just malleable enough to be able to cling to the smallest piece of rock to stand on a sheer cliff. 
He says, you make my feet like this deer. Even though I could be in the most impossible situation. As long as you make my feet strong, I can stand upon you in any situation. Regardless of what happens. He doesn't say it's easy. He doesn't say that God will make me live in comfort. This is a tragic situation. Tragedy is coming. And Habakkuk will most likely see it carried out in his lifetime. But he understands that God is in control, that God is sovereign, and that he is directing the steps of everyone and of everything. Now, don't miss the final note here. It's almost like a throwaway line, right? What's the final words of the book of Habakkuk? You see it? To the choir master with stringed instruments. You know what that means? This is a song. This is a song. That's the final instruction of the book of Habakkuk. Worship the Lord. Use this as an occasion to worship the Lord. Hey, we're going to get destroyed. But God is faithful. Babylon's coming to town. But God is faithful because he's the one who's in charge. I love that last, that last note. Almost like a throwaway line. To the choir master, worship the Lord. This is the song. This is the song we sing because we rejoice in the Lord and we take joy in the God of our salvation. And that's where Habakkuk ends. He lifts his eyes to the horizon. He sees the wicked nation of Babylon bearing down upon them. Surely he has heard the stories of the horrendous acts of Assyria when they conquered the northern tribes. I'm sure they were on display as they surrounded the city of Jerusalem under Sennacherib. He says, I'm, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. God is in control. Now Habakkuk started all of this off with a confused plea of God, what are you doing? Are you asleep? Why are you idle? And now he ends this with a full assurance of faith, lifting him above the madness and focusing his heart on his own savior. Now, brothers and sisters, we live in very uncertain times. A fellow graduate of the master seminary today is in prison in Canada because he dared stand in his pulpit and preach the word of God. They arrested him with handcuffs and ankle cuffs like he was a murderer and led him away and threw him in jail. And like John Bunyan said, we'll let you go as long as you promise not to go up and preach. And he said, you might as well just leave me here. 
We live in times that are uncertain and darkening. We do not live with a hope or even an expectation that our country will turn to the Lord. If that is your hope and that is your expectation, I would begin to adjust that hope and that expectation. Doesn't mean that it can't happen. It will only happen with the ministry of the gospel and the word of God. But don't let that be your hope and your expectation. Rather, let your hope and your expectation be in the God who is working through these circumstances. In a hope that a sovereign and good God is in control and working all things for his glory. The reality at the end of the day is we have better news than Habakkuk did. Because we live on the other side of the cross. He lived looking forward to the cross. We live looking back on the cross. We live knowing that the truth of the gospel offers true change and our true source of joy. And though our circumstances are deteriorating by the day, our faith is built on the foundation of God's strength and our feet may tremble, but he makes us stand on the high places. Our security is in him. Our security is in capable hands. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, I, I shake as I, Consider the words of Habakkuk, Lord, and consider his perspective as he realized that the future was troubled, that his circumstances, he knew that there there was no hope for an immediate deliverance. He knew that the future was was full of a conquering people and destruction and pain for for the kingdom of Judah. And Lord, we know in our own times, God, we know what you have revealed to us to be true, Lord, that things will get worse. That godlessness will increase that hatred for your word and what you call to be true will increase and that we may well fall victims to that hatred. The Lord, you are our salvation. Our salvation is not in our bank accounts. Our salvation is not in our retirement funds. Our salvation is not in anything that this world has to offer to us, God. I pray that our faith will be found solely in you. And that because of that, we rejoice. We rejoice in you, God, because you are faithful and you make us stand. May our eyes be fixed upon you, God. Fixed upon Christ, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. 
and not on the present circumstances, Lord. Your praisings in your name. Amen.